Hi friends, welcome to our brand new podcast, The Albecchio Show. My plan for the podcast was originally to make software testing and QA content more accessible, and the plan is to do so in a more interesting and effective way. Today I'm chatting with someone I've come to know in recent times, which I'm very pleased about and grateful for. The person is a mentor to me, and I'd also now say he's a friend. Peter Thompson, Chief in Command of Thompson QA Consultancy, thank you so much for joining me. How has your weekend been? It's been good, Emma, and thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's uh, over here in Australia. We're uh, we're going through that that lovely time where it's warm, rains in the afternoon, heats up, gets humid, all all round again. So I had a good weekend. Yes, thanks. How about you? Great. Yeah, uh, the weather sounds completely different to Britain, although it, it has warmed up a bit, and, and I'm sure you don't miss the climate. Uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, but not not very often. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine why. So gratefully, I've come to know you pretty well, but for our audience today, can you share with us a little about your career to date? Oh, look, yeah, I can. I consider myself, or one of the terms I've used often is I'm a serial tester. So I started testing way, (laughs) way back before the uh, days of when testing was even a recognised skill set. I was working in operations, uh, which were in massive computer Mm -hmm. rooms, you know, the size of your house and less processing power than what you have on your phone these days. One of the things they got us to do on the night shift was basically test the new programs that were coming out, the new jobs that needed to be run and, and compare them against what was done in production. So that kind of sparked mm-hmm. my interest. Um, testing as a career kind of kicked off towards the mid-90s um, where I, I did a stint at a software house uh, in Cambridge in the UK and mm-hmm. carried on there into to working in the, the banks in London, which again is another you know path well-trodden by many testers. I needed to challenge myself. So in 1999, I'd up sticks, move to New Zealand and do the Y2K testing because they were going to go through Y2K first. And from there, everything's kind of spiraled. Came back to the UK for a while, did a stint with mobile phone companies, then went back into banking and have since kind of built my reputation around um, outsourcing, offshoring, bringing mm-hmm. different weird and wonderful solutions to uh, anyone who wants to listen to me. Sure. So you kind of alluded to it at the start of the call and you mentioned New Zealand. Of course, you moved to New Zealand for the Y2K to be the trailblazer that you are. But um, moving on from that, how did you end up moving to uh, Straya? I understand you were the talk of the town soon after landing, but not necessarily in your own words for the best reasons. Yeah, look, it, can you it, kind of it, share a little more on that? Of course, yeah, and it, it's it's kind of interesting. You don't like most people in in the testing industry do not really put tickets on themselves and think about how good you are and what you can bring to the party. And it was uh, it was probably by chance I came to Australia. Had been working with um, a very nice uh, guy in uh, Barclays. I'm called Tandit Ganguly. He's a fabulous guy, really smart. And for one reason or another, he lost his way at Barclays. And he ended up joining what was one of the major kind of SI partners that was moved to Australia to start their QA or testing practice over here. He phoned me up, mm-hmm. you know, out of the blue and said, look, I've recommended you. Do you want to talk about it? And I said, well, yeah, why not? You know, what have I got to lose? And uh, three phone calls later, there was an envelope in my on my doorstep that had a good contract with good benefits, all the all travel paid for the whole family to move mm-hmm. out to Australia. So that's where, where I ended up there. And of course, what I didn't realise was that really they were trying to tap into my skills around offshoring and outsourcing. So, and mm-hmm. when you do something like that, oh man, you have to be careful with the approach. And, and obviously, <laughs> I, I won't name the. Uh, the Australian bank, unless I already have, in which case we'll have to go bang and edit it out. But if I haven't, that's all, all good news. <laughs> they hadn't approached with it in, in the best possible manner. So there was a lot of 
union involvement. There was a lot of press involvement, you know, regular news bulletins about what we were trying to do and just made it extra hard. And I think Mm -hmm. what's good about a platform like this is I I now actually get to tell the, the positive side of that. And it wasn't about the, the, the kind of drastic cuts because when I, when I look at when you're, when you're outsourcing, whether you're offshoring or not, you need to look at what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And what you want to do, you do more of. And what you don't want to do is what is what you outsource. And so sometimes those numbers of, of people that you either move on or, or, or make redundant or retrench, and whichever language you want to use, uh, it can be quite high. Mm-hmm. And in our case, it was about 130. But I can tell you, out of those 130, 127 of them were rehoused in either jobs in the same company, jobs outside the company, or um, with a supplier in some shape or form. There were only three people we didn't rehouse, and two of those retired. And unfortunately, one we just uh, mm-hmm. we just couldn't get to in the end, which is which is a shame. Sure, sure. But uh, you don't hear that side of the story often. What you hear about is the big 130 plus number of people we got rid of. Sure. Yeah, I know that's something that's come up during our kind of conversations together. And I, yeah, for me, it's kind of testament to the character that you are, that you were instrumental in rehoming all those employees that kind of were. Yeah, you know. it's because unfortunately people think it's personal and, and it's entirely the opposite. The, the personal side of it is about helping them and supporting them and helping them find different jobs in different fields with using different skill sets that they didn't even know they had at the time or, or, mm-hmm. or manufacturing opportunities for them. And, and so it's not personal when, when you, you make the choices to what do we want to do to what don't we want to do it's not a personal point they're not looking at Pete Thompson and go we want to get rid of him so we're not doing what he does it's about these mm-hmm. are the roles we want to do going forward and if we're going to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars more in investment we need to make sure that we've got a partner because the supply and, and Resource, supply resources just not here uh, and that's the same wherever you go you want to go suddenly go from 150 resources to 500 you, know, you just can't have 350 people walk through the door the next day it's not possible sure i think as you kind of mentioned there there is sadly sometimes emotion attached to it and sometimes people don't always see the wood from the, through the trees and sometimes unfortunately that does place a, a target on you know said leaders back not necessarily for the fair reasons but again it's sometimes easier to look outside than look within and and kind of one appreciate the situation for what it is you know just just a, sadly a part of life you know and, and this is business but ultimately yeah I, again as i say a testament to who you are and the character you are so i'm glad you've kind of shared that on the podcast so let's talk about why we're pals for context, I sent a LinkedIn request your way. I was, I was looking to expand my testing network in particular. And you very kindly, right off the bat, extended your kindness in form of mentorship. Uh, why is mentorship so important look, to you? Look, look, there's, there's two things that are important to me about this, Emma. One, I think we're an aging population, whether you're in the UK or Australia. It's an aging population. And when you're in the, the business that we're in, it's important to know that you have strong leaders with the right mentality and understand kind of the ins and outs of what needs to be done in terms of, of testing or quality assurance or quality engineering, whatever you want to call it these days, and be able to lift them up. It's not about me as an individual, you know, still being this you know outstanding person. It's about bringing people to be level with me and up and past me, you know, so I know that the industry I'm in is in good hands. But I think moreover than that, and you know, while this might sound odd to some people, it's partly because I have a big passion for female leaders in testing so it, it is 
quite shocking um, to see the difference between the management layers of testing and the execution layers of testing, just to you know, put them in two camps. That kind of execution layer, the analyst, is predominantly female, um, and there's a reason for that, scientifically proven. Females are better testers than males. Um, but when you step up into that management layer, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. very scarce. There are very few females who make that transition. I've been passionate for a long time about bringing solid female leaders up mm-hmm. to the testing levels because the mindset, the different ways of thinking, you know, allow for better solutions or better thought processes to look at what mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. you're trying to solve. So when you contacted me, for me, it was a no-brainer one because, you know, I like mentoring and, you know, not everyone suits a mentor. You do, which is very good. You know, it's, it's more a peer-to-peer mm-hmm. conversation have these days than anything to do with mentoring. And because you are female, I want to see more females rise up the ranks and start operating in that management, senior mm-hmm. management level of testing because it's very scarce. Yeah. I, very I scarce. love that you're a proponent of this. I think, sadly, and a conversation we've had many a time, sometimes females that, that kind of do beat that path, they can be seen as, as staunch feminists or aggressive or, you know, in a comparison or a parallel to males, you know, their leaders or, you know, a, a positive affirmation or, you know, framing of that kind of ilk. So I, I guess it does hold an inordinate amount of weight for a male counterpart in the testing world to share something in such a way. And you, and you do it so passionately. For me, I, you know, as, as you know, I'm very pro-equity and it's all about, for me, the best people in the role. However, I do think, and it's the same with football, there's the same old parallel. It's about providing the right opportunities to across the board and then the best people flourishing in those roles. That's how I see it. Yeah, I agree. And it's also about having the ability to take the opportunity. And sometimes in the male-female psyche, taking the opportunity is what differentiates the people. You know, and it's on the record, right? So I can't remember, right? So most males will bullshit their way through uh, and worry, not worry about the bits they can't do, where the female psyche is more worried, what about this 20% up here that I can't do? And that's the bit that's going to find me out where a male is more likely to go, well, you know, I'll be six months in the job before they find out I can't do that. And by that point, it's too late, right? So, yeah, it's very interesting. So, yeah, no, I think I think it's good to see, and especially here in Sydney, a huge raft of very strong female leaders in the testing industry mm-hmm. start to come to the fore. It's, sure. it's very promising. Yeah. To be honest, like, I, I think people like yourself and, like, I'm very lucky to have and have worked with some equally wonderful proponents of, of females in the tech space. And it does foster a, a much more enabling environment. You know, sometimes it's, and again, this isn't a well is me story, but you do feel like you work in isolation at times and you do wonder, and it's a conversation again, we've kind of had many a time where you wonder if actually, you know, it does sadly come down to gender. And, you know, if I were male, would this be a conversation we're even having? So yeah, I really love that you're such a proponent of it and you're vocal about it too, which is, I think, half the battle. Yeah, well, you, if you've got a voice, I think the thing I struggled with for a long time was believing mm-hmm. I was a leader. I saw myself as a manager, and it's tough at that point where you, you suddenly realise that actually there's people looking at me for not just to say do this, but looking for advice and guidance and mentorship and things like that. that, that when you realise that that's within your gift, mm-hmm. it's quite overwhelming as well because you start thinking about, well, if I say this, what does that mean? If I say that, what does that mean? And if I say that, do they take that the wrong way? But actually, when you can get your head around it, mm-hmm. it's very empowering to be able to say, actually, I have a voice, so why shouldn't I use that voice for the things 
I'm passionate about and I'm very fortunate I have a voice mm. that people will listen to. And so why should I not use that to be vocal about female leadership in testing? Well, you know, we could possibly come on the ship left and what that means and, and to me and, and things like that. Or, you know, why Cambridge United are the best football team in the world, right? It's You've got the voice, so use it. And more often than not, people don't realise the power that they have, you know, at their hands and, until someone tells them and, and sure, they recognise sure. So yeah, you're in my opinion, and you know I'm vocal about this. I, I just think you're a good guy, Pete. So um, as you know, though, unfortunately, the podcast is limited to a, kind of a forty minute recording cap, and thankfully we won't get onto Cambridge for that reason. <laughs> so yeah, football uh, <laughs> football misses you this time round. But nicely yeah. there, you've um, segued us on to my next question. So in preparation for this chat, and because you did give me cop lunch, I did go digging. And did you know that the last three comments you left on LinkedIn were they are lucky to have you. Keep up the good work. Keep up the awesome work. All the best yep. will excel in whatever role you do next. For me, reading those, I'm not at all surprised, as you've been nothing short of supportive and cajoling of my growth too. Whenever we speak and talk about people and understanding and the character being intrinsic to a person and their success, how critical has that interpersonal skill been to the trajectory of your career and the ability to manage huge teams? Well, that's a really interesting question. And the reason I'm pausing a little bit is I'm trying to remember the middle comment. I know the first one <laughs> that was for. I know the last one because I put that up yesterday. And both of those guys, I, I should probably call them out. One is Amit, who's a very good friend of mine, just an absolute genius in, in the QA space. Spent a lot of time listening to Amit. And the last one was for a guy called Danaraj. And Danaraj was supplied my offshore team and just inspiration to anybody around him. He's one of the most quietly spoken people, but the most effective person I've seen. And when I talk about, you know, teams of 1,200, he talks about teams of 10, mm -hmm. 15,000 people that he's in charge of. Just an, just an amazing human being. So I never really saw myself as a people person, to be honest, because some, sometimes the decisions you make and you have to make in, in what we do are really not very pleasant sometimes. And you learn to live with it after a while but it takes a toll and i never saw myself as a people person because a lot of what i was doing was was although we were finding people roles and doing things like that we you know it was still you know a loss to them as they've lost the job they had so it wasn't until i had that epiphany about being a leader rather than a manager and when you're talking about 1200 people it, that is overwhelming when it comes over you, that, you know there's 1200 people who are looking to me for next steps strategy mm -hmm. and things like that that you kind of realize that without the people you can't do anything and you know i had or had been on on the right training courses and met the right people to help kind of support how i get my head into being a leader rather than being kind of mm -hmm. a functional manager and how you bring people to the journey i think i can't remember who said it but i remember doing a, a year-long course with a, a new zealand guy from michael henson just an absolute blinding person just i never met anyone like him just so engageable and said the only way you can be a leader yeah. is if people follow so you can call yourself a team lead you can call yourself whatever you like if, if people aren't following or you know as we like to hear buying the kool-aid you're selling you're not actually leading anything so you've got to realize that the people are, are leading and then that means people that believe in you and if you can get that belief and you can get them to believe in what your vision is or what your mission is or what your purpose is or what your team's purpose is then that all shapes the behavior about how people will pull together to you know, achieve the goal. And I should plug my good friend Kerry's book. It's all about leadership. I'm not going to plug it enough to remember what it's called. Probably got a copy over there behind me, but he talks about purpose over task. 
And when you can get as a leader and understand the why, then really the tasks take care of themselves and, and sometimes the tasks don't matter. So are you do is what you're doing on purpose? And if that is a yes, then Sure. So I guess my question, just to follow on, what would you say is the key way to get that buy-in? You've got to be passionate and you've got to believe. If you can't believe in whoever you're working for or whatever you're, whichever company you're working in, if you can't believe the message or the purpose that's there, you're there for, then your behaviour is counterproductive to what you're trying mm-hmm. to tell people to do. But a lot of it is just believe in the people. So one of the things I always say is, is when you join... Any organisation I'm in charge of, trust is given. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's given. You're joining because we trust you can do the job. And and a lot of people think it should be the opposite way around. And when people realise they're trusted and there's belief in them, then their behaviour becomes more driven mm-hmm. towards what you want. And it's really getting people to understand and getting them to know why they are. And here could be anywhere. Right? So if you're working in a major bank, whether in the UK, the US or Australia, if you don't know what your role is in contributing to the purpose of the bank, then you've got to ask yeah. yourself why you're here. Now, the leader's job is to get you to understand why you're here. If they can do that, then that's what drives the magic because you're all acting as one mm-hmm. towards the same mm-hmm. purpose. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's certainly the way I'm aligned. You know, trust for me should be given off the bat and respect should be something that's earned. That's kind of my take on things. And, and certainly in, reputa- in terms of reputation in the business and, you know, as you mentioned towards the start of this podcast, you know, you kind of overcame this negatively spun situation, you know, when you first moved to Australia and actually probably didn't receive the plaudits that you did, you know, or you were due, let's say, for all the great work you did in, in rehoming people in terms of you know, professional capacity. Yeah, I think, again, re- respect is something that's really kind of, and I don't want to say sadly or unfortunately, but I think it's something that's, you know, paid over time and earned over time. I think it should be something that's accrued. It, it, yeah, absolutely. If you can build yourself up, as you know, as I'm quite fortunate to have done, to be known in the industry, then then that level of respect comes where, wherever you go. But it takes time. You can't walk into any organisation and mm. respect me because I, I'm a senior leader here. You know, you, that respect has to be given back and you give it out you get that by trusting people to do what you sure. them to do okay so interestingly i want to get your take on a comment something that we've mentioned a lot and is quite typically the flavor of the week within testing shift left you mentioned it already you did spoil the mm. fun but i won't hold you to it so firstly can you share your definition of shift left and secondly what is your take on it well look, i've <laughs> You know, I've tried to write something that's coherent, <laughs> and it's not really coming out recently. So, so I'll work on that. And shift left is a buzzword. And what's interesting, you know, shift, shift left is not new. It's really not new. I've been knocking in, uh, in and around the testing world for about forty years, and shift left has been there for as long mm-hmm. as I can. And you know, I know what the premise is. The premise is that you move stuff to the left, and therefore you're removing defects earlier. But that, all of that requires work. Uh, I know that sounds a bit odd, but it, it requires work. And, and if everybody says, says, right, we're all going to shift to the left, then all that you're doing is standing one step to the left mm-hmm. where you were before. And listening as, as we move into more of the, you know, the scaled agile frameworks and it's more hybrid models being delivered everywhere than, than anything else, shift left is becoming more predominant and how you do automation earlier. But when you think about some of the stuff that comes with that, which is service virtualization, 
you know, pr proper proper stubbing, proper mechanisms. If you take one step back from it and ask yourself the question, would I need to do all that if my unit, my tech, my code was a hundred percent? And more often than not, the answer is no. So when I look at shift left now, right now for me, it's about actually just do your job. If a developer's unit tested their code a hundred percent, there's some component integration testing. System test did it, system integration test did it, AR. Now these are all waterfall terms, but you can get them into that mini cycle within any kind of sprint mechanism for whichever tribe or guild you want. If everyone does their job, then actually do you need to shift left? Part of the, the reason we talk about shift left is because we find things late. We find things late because they mm -hmm. get delivered or they don't get delivered in a strategic way that allow you to test the things that you want to test when you can. I don't think it's about shifting left. I think it's just getting people mm -hmm. to do their mm -hmm. job. Then let's have a conversation about what more could be done earlier with things like service virtualization. Sure. Shift left comes with a cost. You are building stuff that somebody okay. else is building. And if you're not careful, you end up virtualizing a whole service or rebuilding a whole service in a virtualized world that's still not been developed by somebody else. You're developing the whole thing twice. So, yeah, I know it's a buzzword, and I know as we move into the scaled agile framework, New brand new world of everything. Shift left is a good buzzword, but honestly, if people did their job, I don't really think. Yeah, I, I wanted to get your take on it. I feel like we're in the same camp about this. It's much ado about nothing. You know, for me, if you kind of get that underpinning strategy and governance sorted, I know you alluded to code there, but I think if you kind of really set your framework out and you stall out early enough, you know, part of testing, as you know, as you well know, is is catering to some of the random permutations that may come up. It's thinking ahead. It's trying to kind of alleviate risk as early as you can. So, yeah, for me, I'm kind of not getting yeah. caught up with this buzzword. And it probably in a similar vein to you. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and risk is the key word there because that's really what testing is about. But, but actually, what shift left is about. While everyone tells you about testing, it's the one thing shift left is not about. If left is actually about engineering quality mm -hmm. at the start, and you do that by writing testable user stories or requirements, you know, building code that, that has automated tests, using your DevOps pipeline for what it should be used for, you're not actually shifting everything left. You're just engineering quality in mm -hmm. every single mm -hmm. stage. You know, and when, when people say shift left is about testing, you know, I challenge immediately their understanding of what shift left is. But also, that's hugely denigrated to people who have spent years building a career in testing under the assumption that everybody yeah. can test. Yeah. And they can't. And, you know, I know one, one of my other pet hates is, is the SDET, the Software Development Engineering Test. And I did an interview with a really nice man called Rajnishan Hobia about five years ago. And I said, actually, I don't think it's about SDET. I think it's about ST because actually we've got automation engineers who can cut code as well as the, any, yeah. any developer. So why aren't we putting our software test engineers into development to write testable code plus the mm -hmm. tests that do it? And I think you need to you know, think that there is a reason testing mm -hmm. the career for It is a difference. Yeah, thing. I think it's easy for us to talk about testing in terms of career capacity, but, um, you know, and I know we work in different markets as such. For me, working in projects, I don't always feel that people understand the true value of testing. And I know that's for us to, as leaders and pioneers in the space, to really convey that message but again it's i don't know if it's something that you kind of see in your specialist areas but for me it's certainly been something that i've had to you know not 
<laughs> be into people but again you spend and I, I feel like I spend so much time trying to you know ascertain the value and the reward from testing is that something you can share yeah yeah and the secret is, is there is it's, it's very simply it's a sunk cost and that's why all the time cost is, is looked at I actually look at the terms of effort because I think when you're trying to streamline or or, or uh, prioritize and, and bring the effort down because you can always make things cheaper you know, you can go and hire cheaper resources. You can you know, do things that it's, it's about how do you reduce the effort when you want to have those that level mm-hmm. of conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you know the, the easiest thing for me after you know kind of years of being beaten up for you know, you know you're too expensive, it's too much effort is actually is t- to stop thinking about testing and thinking mm-hmm. about quality. And you know I know globally now quality and testing are the same thing, and I know that there are companies out there who say they call the engineering, but they've just renamed their <laughs> test analysts to test engineers to quality engineers and things like that and gone on that journey but it's about engineering mm-hmm. quality in and so when you start thinking about that in those terms you can have better conversations that aren't about cost but are about effort and so where we can reduce the effort if this happens and then you can reduce the effort more if that happens and and actually you know you can engineer a process around everything that tries every step of the way to make sure that that the people who are testing have everything they need to be able to do and if they have that then actually your test effort comes down considerably if they don't that's what increases the effort and it comes back to your insurance policy when you when testing is really about buying insurance you you can spend no money and suffer the consequences of production or you can buy your premium and that premium sometimes comes very high but you have a reduced risk in production and therefore you have no loss of business and things like that so it's uh yeah yeah, it's the challenge for people like ours is to not worry yeah. about it. Okay. It is what it is. It's a sunk cost. It's going to cost you this much. You know, you can either pay it or you don't. It's. I know that sounds pretty harsh, but it's also very true. Yeah, and it's sad. I met with a client quite recently and delivered a, a testing workshop there, a train-the-team type of uh, session. And sadly, they said, right, this time around, we don't quite have the necessary budget for testing. However, we do want some insight into that because we have suffered in the past. We have implemented a system that we've essentially taken out soon after go live. The testing wasn't effective. We didn't really do the correct levels of testing. We didn't consider phases. We didn't govern it properly. And sadly, I think coming to to round off my point, sometimes the easiest way to learn is through a harsh lesson. Yeah, you'll find most businesses that have started investing heavily in testing have been on the back of a set one in production or a priority one in production that has cost their not just their reputation but their brand and their shareholders yeah, money absolutely um, and you know there are ways to prevent these things but equally you know there's also never going to be defect free mm-hmm. in production mm-hmm. right? it's about how do we manage the big mm-hmm. risks out, mm-hmm. right and therefore the incidents you do get in production are either known or a realized risk and so you're already prepared sure. for so I want to kind of move on from that and, and talk about automation and manual testing in a second. You mentioned your good friend, Kerry Butler. I have read said book and I do have the title here. It's called 10 Leading Tools, Rules, Tools and Habits for Leading Yourself and Leading Others. And I can attest that it is a very good book, something that I've enjoyed reading and within testing, you know, it's, <laughs> it's no surprise that some of the material is pretty dry to say the least. But segueing on to my point that I'm really wanting to kind of nibble at you about i'll be honest pete so i've been privy to listen i have a sneak peek of your uh, upcoming podcast with your good friend and fellow mm-hmm. test professional kerry butler i think it's a fair assumption to say that you're a big fan of automation 
Is there a place for manual testing in your world? Uh, look, there is. Yes, of course there is. But I do like to automate as much as possible, right? Because it ultimately, it actually doesn't, I don't believe it's cheaper in the long run. I, I know everyone thinks it is because you push a button and everything <laughs> happens. But actually, you know, your automation script is just like the code that, that it's testing. It needs to stay updated. It needs to stay relevant. You know, when things change, it has to change. And yes, you can put all the, the you know, kind of the objects in. So, you know, you change it once and then it changes in all the scripts. But it's when it works, it's mm, a thing of good. Mm. So I, you know, first came, came across automation in the mid-90s. And again, working for the software house, we, we actually had a 12-hour a automated script that we ran every night. Every night, it, we were, there's only 50, 60 people in the entire company. And every night we would do a build. We would kick off automation that would, at those days, clean the PC, reload everything, probably Windows 3.1 or Windows ME and maybe Windows 95 back then. And then for 12 hours, our automated scripts would run and we'd come in in the morning mm -hmm. and pick it all up. You know, we call that kind of DevOps these days because it's exactly mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. premise. I think automation is is a key, but but also sometimes you have to have that value conversation. Like what's the value of, you know, doing the low cost, you know, the, the once in five years test versus the, you know, once in a day tests. And, and so there is value for manual in there. And a lot of the time I'll say most of the time we should run stuff manually first, if we can, just mm -hmm. to check it mm -hmm. works, because there's no point trying to automate something. That of course. Work. But even you look at the, the low value ones, it, it depends what they are. So again, we, we, at the bank, the big bank that we worked at, or I worked at, you know, things like uh, POS machines or, or the, the work the teller does was relying on humans doing exactly the same thing and humans make errors and things like that. So, you know, we m mm -hmm. built robots to do exactly the same work and we could go through, because the robot could run 24-7, we could get through, you know, three weeks worth of testing in two days just with, you know, car, all the different types of cards, all the different types mm -hmm. of terminals, all the different printers and things like that. So... I try to automate as much as possible. Um, but yeah, there is room for manual. I don't like the term manual testers. I hate saying <laughs> manual tester. What I do like is, you know, people who want to learn a different mm -hmm. skill set and, and translate what's there. And uh, I know that it's test engineer or quality engineer or whatever you want to call it these days. But I think it, it's about, you know, embracing change. So I hear a lot about change fatigue and things like that. And I don't personally believe in change fatigue because what we do is change we work in the mm -hmm. business of change so if we're changing everybody else's life what, why shouldn't ours be changing all the time too so just you know continually looking at the way things can be done better smarter yeah. quicker because once you get there everyone oh right absolutely right, so we all know. absolutely yeah. yeah it's interesting um, i think for me speaking openly you know obviously i specialize in the microsoft stack and dayforce um ceridian software but within that kind of space, automation was limited. Certainly when the products first came out, let's take Dynamics 365, you know, the only tool for quite some time and again, quite rigid in its approach was the regression suite automation tool, the RSAT. But now, you know, as we've recently launched, my company Fortitude 17 has partnered with Curiosity and we offer Test Modeler as part of our automation suite. So the evolution, and funny you mentioned it, the irony almost of us being testers and working on these kind of transformation projects, yet not being so receptive to change ourselves. You know, you, you can't really take that approach. It's not really fair. So um, you, you yeah. kind of have to practice what you preach. Um, one, one thing I kind of do want to 
pick at you again for, uh, it's starting to sound like a nag, is, um, and again, the bone to pick with you is, what's your take on exploratory testing? In the podcast, you mentioned it's only tackled by people for proficient in the system. So in your opinion, is it not for QA folk as such? No, you're almost poking the bear a little bit. That's my intention. Uh, again, exploratory testing is nothing new. You know, it was actually used as an excuse in the late 90s not to write test cases, right? Oh, I'm doing exploratory testing. And for which is okay, but in some industries, like especially in financial services, you just can't do it because any time you find a an issue and it's recorded, you have to have traceability because that's what all the regulators and auditors and, and people want to see. For me, the real good use of exploratory testing is when you've got the real user in doing their job the way they do it. Okay, so go on. because you're capturing requirements right at a high level. But what you're not doing is capturing how the user does mm. his job. And that's where you find sometimes, oh, when I do this, I actually do that mm. next, not that. And the manual says it the opposite round, but the user does it differently. And then you've got a choice to make, which is you either make the change to do what the user does or you train the user to do it a different way. But the only people who can really successfully do it, and again, in my humble opinion, are people who are at the front end of how they use the software. Anybody else is just pretending to use it Mm-hmm. in a different way and that's not well i think we, maybe we have to disagree well agree to disagree on this one i i do think there's value but i'm glad i asked you to expand on the point because yeah i, I completely agree in the fact that i believe that the end users are the best people to maximize and milk exploratory testing for all it's worth but i do you know to caveat your point i do believe there's use and value in qa folk doing exploratory testing too so I want to move on. I, I don't want to kind of get into a nice dispute about that, as our conversations often lead to. But finally, Pete, just to summarise our podcast and as well, the way we wrap up every podcast we host, based on the famous book that's essentially a collection of excellent advice from MVPs, let's say, it's called If I Could Tell You Just One Thing, what is your final bit of advice you would offer uh, to anyone in the world, in particular when they're joining a test profession? Wow. Okay. That's a very big question. Ultimately, I, I think it's believe in yourself. When you're selected for a role, whichever role it is, you're selected for a reason. And so you've got to believe that. You don't get put in a role just because you got away with an interview. I think you get in a role because someone believes you're the right person for the job. The key to success is believing in yourself. So I would say for anyone out there who's about to start a new role or thinking of getting into the test industry, Fabulous. Come <laughs> join us. It's, it's great fun. The was warm. And just sure. believe in yourself. Thanks, Pete. You know I appreciate all your time and tutelage, but in particular, thanks for staying up late to chat to me for this podcast today. I'm so pleased. Thanks, Pete. I'm so pleased to share you and all the fantastic work you do at Thompson QA Consultancy. So thank you again. If anyone in Australia or New Zealand or even further afield need an expert in test strategy or management, amongst other things, I implore you to reach out to Pete. You definitely won't regret it, as I can certainly attest to. To those listening, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow us on your respective streaming service, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, whatever it might be. Have a good one and remember to always make testing a priority if you're looking to succeed, whether that's in life or business. <laughs>